Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chanock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Ruth Setlack, who will discuss the impact of PANS, PANDAS, and Lyme disease on clinical work. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So today, I am so excited about my guest for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am going to be speaking with and interviewing Ruth Setlack, uh, who is a licensed clinical social worker currently living in Colorado. She has a master's degree of social work from the University of Kentucky with a specialty area in mental health. In terms of what she has focused on with her education and her practice, she's focused on child parent attachment, neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism, ADHD, sensory processing and regulatory disorders, adoption and trauma, PTSD, PTSD developmental trauma, neuroscience, etc. One of the things that out of her great array of experience that we're going to be focusing on today is her work considering medical disorders within the context of treating children with attachment issues and and adults for that matter. She also works with adults. So this is an issue I don't think is talked about a whole lot, but really should be part of a good assessment. We should, as clinicians, uh, always be looking if there are medical factors contributing to what could be going on with a child. So I wanted to kind of hope, uh, my hope is to provide some information about a bit of a gap out there in how some of us are working. So I'm very happy to have Ruth with us today. So good morning, Ruth. It's so good to have you here this morning. How are you? Great, it's good to be here. Good. Well, um, I wanted to see before we get going on our topic, if you could just tell listeners um, a little bit about yourself and your practice in general, and then maybe how you kind of got on to this real specific thing about how medical issues might be impacting children we're working with. So let's, let's hear from you. Okay. Well, I have a private practice in Golden, Colorado. Um, I specialize in working with kids who have some neurological differences, such as autism, sensory processing disorder, ADHD, um, and so I tend to see, you know, a lot of pretty complex cases. I also specialize in trauma, um, and attachment issues. So, um, but I work with a lot of kids who have more complex presentations. Um, and so I think the goal always is in uh, assessment of these kids is to kind of look really deeply and widely to try to figure out how we can best help them and the families. 
Yes, yes. And I appreciate you saying that so much because I think that, you know, this is the attachment theory in action podcast. So most people here um, working from an attachment perspective is some part of how they are practicing. But I've seen, you know, the tendency to just like put rad label on children or things like this that we know to begin with is not the most helpful diagnosis, but to just, you know, very quickly label kids without looking at, as you're describing, there can be a myriad of complexities going on. And I do think the one reason I'm so excited to talk to you about the medical issues is I do think that's something we overlook. Like I've even seen that with kids with enuresis and encopresis, people just assuming oh, this is a control issue or, or this is, you know, a, a be, purely a behavioral issue mm-hmm. and then come to find that there's something really significant going on medically with this child, which that, that's, it's good to find that out, but it's sometimes kind of sad that the child has been being right viewed in, in such an uh, incorrect way. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, as attachment professionals, we are trained to really look deeply and to notice things that um, professionals with other orientations may not. Yes. But we, you know, certainly are looking at causes for, of trauma, family dynamics. And the important thing when we are assessing is that if we can keep in mind, you know, an even broader <laughs> view of the potentialities of what could be in, in, in um, what could be happening, yes. it's really helpful that we're looking at all of the potential uh, things that could be contributing or causing the symptoms we're seeing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> so, so. Why don't you start out sharing? I know there's a couple diagnoses that are, there can be many, but that are particularly ones that you've seen and maybe learn more about and thought about more. Could you tell us about some of those? Yeah, I, um, because I work with kids with complexities, I've learned to kind of, uh, you know, keep an open mind in, in terms of symptoms and I've also um, had some training in terms of biomedical interventions that can be helpful. So whether we're looking at trauma or whether we're looking at um, you know, kids with neurodiversity, I, I think one of the things that we need to look at, uh, we're finding out more and more. It used to be, I think, that you know, looking at these things felt a little bit like hoo-hoo stuff. Um, but now research is really coming online. And we know that, for example, the gut microflora and the gut-brain communication is a big deal in terms of mental health presentation for children and for adults. Mm-hmm. Anxiety, depression, um, irritability, or even oppositional type behaviors with differences in the gut mo- microflora. Um, and we now know that there's a direct mechanism through the lymphatic system for communication with the gut and the brain. Um, and that we have, you know, the majority of our neurotransmitters in the gut. So, um, so gut health is one of the things I consider. Um, I look at diet. Kids who have challenges in gut health often choose or self-select 
you know, very specific, very limited diets or diets that are predisposed to carbs and sugar. Um, they tend to avoid vegetables and lean meats and other things um, that can be more supportive for the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, these are just things that I kind of keep in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. When I'm looking at, at kids with who present with behavioral difficulties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's true, you know, that these things may have been seen as, you know, woo woo or almost like there's not a connect between the emotional and the physical. And you know, that's what I appreciate about how the ACEs study has sort of just blown that whole thing apart that, you know, a psychological and physical are strongly interconnected, particularly as it relates to trauma and difficult experiences. So the first thing would be you're thinking about gut health. You're thinking about, um, what is this child's diet like? Um, you may be listening for cues like you just described. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what, what would you then do if you, if you thought gut health uh, was a concern? Well, gut health, um, if, I, if I have a concern, a lot of times I might refer um, a family to a more functional medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. Traditional doctors tend not to look at things like the gut microflora. Um, <laughs> But functional medicine doctors have been doing this for a long time, and they know that you can have um, imbalances with uh, candida or yeast, with bacterial infections, even parasites, and that these can, um, because again, we have the neurotransmitters in the gut, and because there's a direct communication between the gut and the brain, it can impact behavior and even present as pretty typical mental health uh, difficulties like depression and anxiety. Um, so I would refer them to a functional medicine doctor and they would, you know, through a variety of, um, assessments, possibly urine or a stool analysis, uh, take a look and see what is happening in the gut. And are there some things that we can treat that could shift, um, and improve behavior just by treating what's happening in the gut or by shifting diet, which can also impact the gut microflora. Right. So before we move on to, to another issue, what if um, a person is in a rural area, um, perhaps a different part of the country, uh, that functional medicine is not readily available, or um, my experience is insurance often does not pay for that? Mm -hmm. There so, are some times that take insurance, but they are rare. Yes. So are there any even like books that a clinician could share with a parent where uh, obviously it's better if you could see somebody working with functional medicine, but yeah. even just some basic information where a parent could even like, yeah, sort of like it's, it's, it's best if your child can see an occupational therapist, but you could read the out of sync child and get some ideas just yourself as a parent. I appreciate you bringing that up because that is um, often a limitation in terms of either access or resources. And um, you can even Google this stuff now because it's much more mainstream and becoming uh, more well researched. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think has a lot more credibility behind mm -hmm. than it used to you can even just google and find quite a bit of information around gut health and how to improve gut health through diet 
or certain supplements that you can take. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of books on this as well. Okay. Um, it is it is a pretty um, pretty well written uh, topic nowadays. Um, so there is a lot of easy access in terms of. I wish I had some actual titles of books I could give you. I didn't. I don't have that prepared, but I could certainly provide you with some. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but but I would also say just um, there's a lot of both research and um, doctors are writing about this on the internet as well. Yes, wonderful. Yes. So now, what about pandas? That's yeah. something that seems to be popping up here and there. Maybe wow. you could even explain what that stands for, what that's about. So. PANDA stands for uh, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcal Infection. <laughs> <It's a moment. laughs> wow! I'm yeah. glad they call it PANDAS. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, it, was originally, um, it was originally found by uh, Susan Sweeto, who was a researcher who did a lot of research on Sydenham's chorea, which is, another, which is an autoimmune condition um, also caused by strep but causes different types of symptoms. Um, and rheumatic fever is another autoimmune condition caused by strep antibodies. But um, the PANDAS is a situation that causes pretty acute onset neuropsychiatric symptoms, usually presenting like OCD, um, oppositionality or emotional lability, generalized anxiety, phobias, um, you can have uh, difficulty with math skills, be behavioral regression, um, onset of many OT type sensory symptoms, motor symptoms. Um, and it's now considered you know, a subset of something called PANS, which is um, pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. And the reason it's now a subset is that what they have found is that strep is just one of a, of a large variety of infections that can either trigger autoimmunity and cause these symptoms or get in the central nervous system causing inflammation and can cause a variety of neuropsychiatric symptoms in children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's much more widespread than originally thought. Um, mm -hmm. Present a little differently, whether it's autoimmune or whether it's an infection in the central nervous system. But, uh, and, and the exact causes now are, are not known, um, but we know that it's, it relates to immune function, infections, and inflammation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's impacting the brain in a variety of ways, mm -hmm. um, but causing a large variety of neuropsychiatric symptoms. So with the, the symptoms that you shared that can come with this, I know I and I'm sure many listeners are like, whoa, you know, this sounds like the potential for just about every kid I'm working with. Absolutely. And so, yeah. so are you doing some kind of, you know, screening with all kids? You, I mean, you're doing an overall assessment screening. You know, it sounds like you're, you're keeping this, like you said, in your mind. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you look at that? Um, you know, is there one level of assessment where you're almost like a screening and then something else where, okay, I need to go deeper with this. This is really looking like, you know, this could be an issue. Yeah, I, of course, I've developed a bit of a, of a clinical gut around this. Yes. But um, I would say, you know, some really common things that would 
you know, have me sent, refer out for medical testing would be when the um, symptoms don't match clinical history. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we'll, you know, have a kid who looks like a significant trauma kid. Mm -hmm. And yet the parents are saying there's no trauma history. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I know that a lot of times I hear clinicians going, there has to be trauma that we don't know about, right? Because of the presentation. But very often I find, no, these are medical issues that look like trauma. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you can have a kid who even looks really severe, like a child um, with reactive attachment disorder. Um, yet it's a biological family. There's no trauma history and it can be confusing. Yeah. Right? Like there must be something missing in the history. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a real red flag for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other, you know, I look for uh, things in the history in terms of maybe even developmental things. Uh, if there's a history of some subtle developmental things, sensory issues, um, I'm going to almost always refer out for testing for any kid with autism, with OCD, with sensory processing challenges. These are neurological things that unless there's something in the history that there would be a cause, I'm going to try and see differential diagnosis to see if we can determine a cause. Mm -hmm. If we can, I can very often greatly reduce treatment time, um, remove barriers to treatment. Um, another thing I look for is a child who's been in treatment a lot and the family is really engaged and people seem to be doing work, but the child doesn't seem to be making progress. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to think what might, what might be in the way other than just a systems issue. Now with something like pandas, is that something like a typical pediatrician could, could check for a family or, or would they have to find a functional medicine person for that? Well, a, t a pediatrician could, but very often pediatricians are not well-versed in this. They're mm -hmm. be a little bit um, apprehensive to get involved in this because a lot of times they tell me, I don't know how to treat it, so I don't want to diagnose it. Um, and so they want to refer to a specialist. Okay. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, though, you'll get a curious or a really accommodating, supportive pediatrician who just wants to help the family. But I find more often than not, I need to refer to someone who knows a little bit more. And who would, if a family mm -hmm. pediatrician, who might they refer to? Would, do you think? Yeah. Is there so possibly an immunologist? Okay. Because immunologists may take a look at what's happening with the immune function. Okay. And they can assess for autoimmune markers. They can mm -hmm. assess for certain inflammatory mar markers. Okay. Okay. And they can also assess for immune um, deficiencies. So if okay. the immune system isn't working well, you can have a child who has acute infections in the body and isn't showing illness signs. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't necessarily think, oh, clearly this kid has been sick. Mm -hmm. But they may actually have infections that the immune system isn't addressing that are causing the neuropsychiatric symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that might be a path that would fit in someone's, I hate to keep bringing this up, but it's reality, like in their insurance network or something, you know, yeah. that your pediatrician yes. would say, you should see an immunologist and I'm going to give you a referral to that. And there are immunologists yeah. or neurologists that are knowledgeable. Um, okay. And often a functional medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. um, just because they tend to get a lot of the more complicated cases that mm -hmm. aren't addressed 
just by psychiatric medication, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the way that we tend to go more traditionally in the mental health field. It's just psychiatric medication, right? Yeah. So that's another thing is if a child's on a lot of medication and they're still showing a lot of symptoms, very often there might be a medical cause. Mm -hmm. You know, this conversation's reminding me a little bit when I had my TheraPlay training, um, which I started doing this type of work in the 90s. And this is how it was with um, what was then called sensory integration problems. Yes. It was like, oh no, like this is just, you know, a, this isn't true. This is not, not accurate. This is a lot of OTs weren't even like trained. You know, the first, when I went to my fair play training back way back then was the first I had even ever heard of it. I'm like, what are they even talking about? And then talking to occupational therapists who don't, didn't really know. So, so it sort of reminds me a little bit like that, where that has changed so much um, now. But at that time, it was really hard to find help. And, and you even had people arguing that it wasn't even real. Yeah, and, and certainly that's the situation with PANS or PANDAS um, and another infection that can also cause very similar um, central nervous system disturbances, Lyme disease, and their co-infections with that, it can all be very related. In fact, there's even research uh, showing the difficulties of families that have children who present this way because very often there hasn't been, a, there's research showing it's there and we're getting more and more research, um, but there isn't enough research to really answer a lot of the diagnostic and treatment questions that are needed for all the varying ways this is presenting in children. And so families, um, are left very often, it can take even years for a diagnosis because everybody's merely looking at the mental health presentation. You can have a lot of stress on the family um, because they can't find doctors who believe them. And when we're looking at the very complicated mental health presentation of these children, we can have um, parents who are taking the brunt of this. Either the child is seen as maybe not willing to do the work or the family is looked at um, as a source of issues. Because if you look at the presentation and you think about say what an attachment therapist would look at, mm -hmm. separation anxiety, um, oppositionality, um, these things are, are very common symptoms. Um, uh, emotional regulation challenges, um, you know, certainly compulsions, OCD, but behavioral regression. You can have enuresis, mm -hmm. baby talk. You can have um, re school regression, uh, handwriting deterioration. Lots of things that look like a trauma happened. Mm -hmm. Really significant and abrupt behavioral changes. And um, it can be very confusing to see how the child is interacting with the parents. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you see a kid who can, who's working so hard to hold it together at school and goes home and the behavior falls apart. Mm -hmm. And I often hear therapists saying, well, clearly there's a problem at home because look at the behavior at the home, uh, in the home. And um, so I really feel like 
if more practitioners could be aware of some of these things and widen the scope of, of assessment, it can, be, it can really save so much stress and so much time for these families who have been doing a lot of mental health treatment, who have you know, maybe been blamed, who have been not believed, mm-hmm. and then also experience the same in the medical profession. Out there on the level of stress and families. And also, I would say, you know, adding school system in there too. Imagine how this is impacted at school. Um, so, mm-hmm. just a real source of stress uh, for the whole family system. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part one in a two-part series with Ruth Setlack, so be sure to check out part two next week. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at Chaddock.com. We hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.